Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 42. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Holding on to the plow while wiping away tears. That's Christianity. Holding on to the plow and wiping away tears. That's Christianity. Joseph's son, he knew this axiom well. Joseph's son uh, was the pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Romania. There was a book written about his life called Love Like Jesus. And in this book, it tells of son's remarkable faith in the face of persecution from the Romanian governments. He would uh, lead these worship services. He would go into the cities during the week. He would proclaim the gospel everywhere he was around. And he was public enemy number one. 
There is an exchange in this book that they have between Joseph and the Romanian government official. And I want you to look on the screen with me. They were seeking to kill him and Joseph says this. He says, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Now he's under interrogation at this point. He says, your supreme weapon is killing me. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching and everyone who has the tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man has preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After this exchange, one of the officers had talked with the other officials and they said this. He said, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. And as Son got this information back to him, it caused him to reflect on this interchange and the way that uh, he was living his life. He says this, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I'd been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted so badly to live. I had wasted my life and activity, but now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Church, is that not the paradox of the Christian life and experience? Jesus even says this in Matthew 10. He says, forever, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is the story of our Christian experience. Now, in America, we might not be as afraid of dying a physical death, but more of a social and cultural uh, death where we experience loss of relationships and promotions and jobs and popularity. But like son, we have the same choice laid before us. Do we fly under the radar, keep a low profile because we're scared to be a faithful and loving witness to Christ? Or would we rather take up our cross and stand boldly in truth and love and value Christ more than life itself. The good news is once you start to live like this, when you're ready to die for the sake of Jesus to be glorified, that's when we start to live. That's when we experience freedom. But this causes us to ask, when you live like this, when you live boldly for Christ, it makes us ask, well, what are the consequences of living like this? I'm gonna blow your mind with this outline. There's gonna be two consequences. Number one, there's gonna be negative consequences. And number two, there's going to be positive consequences. Mind blowing, right? Wow. So let's start with the negative first. What are some of the negative consequences? Because you'll notice this text was so long, what I'm gonna do is uh, we're gonna do a survey of these texts and find the truth once we put all these things together. 
Now we're gonna read a survey of these verses, but as we read the negative consequences, what I want you to see is the pattern of concentric circles of conflict that will happen. You'll notice it happens from religious leaders and from non-religious government leaders, from family members and even personal conflict that we will have when we live for Jesus. Notice in verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. 17 and 18, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So it's religious areas, cultural areas. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. So that's non-religious leaders to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So those are all non-Christians in that culture. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father, his child and children will rise, rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Whew, church, take what you know about Christianity and force it through this grid. Take what you know and force it through this grid. Jesus's words are sobering, they're humbling. They reorient what we think about our worldview. Jesus, yes, is all about love and peace. Right, He's the good shepherd. He lays his life down. He is wonderful and loving, but that love and peace that he brings is very different from the love and peace that we assume that everybody has in this world. It causes us to ask. Jesus doesn't really point out one thing in this text that people are gonna hate you for. He basically is giving an experience of the Christian life. So it causes us to ask, why are we hated? Like, what is it about us that people will hate us for and deliver us over for? Where is the source of this conflict? It's Jesus. Jesus is the sole source of all of this conflict. And it causes us to then ask the follow-up, well, what's the heart of Jesus's ministry? What was Jesus all about? His ministry is encapsulated in what we call the gospel. This message is good news. And for something to be good, it has to be juxtaposed with something bad. And don't lose the fact that the gospel from beginning to end is wildly offensive to sinful hearts. Don't be thinking about everyone else out there in the world. This is deeply offensive to every single one of us. You can share the gospel with so much love and kindness and gentility. And a sinful person hearing this message can be wildly offended because there's a difference between hurt and harm. We can share the truth that might hurt a little bit, but we're not harming people. If I said, hey, y'all, I think I wanna be a hair model. And you're like, but Matt, you're bald, bro. Like you can't be a hair model and I'm delusional. I'm like, ah, that does kind of hurt a little bit. You're not saying I'm a horrible person because I'm bald and I shouldn't have certain access to things in life because I'm bald, but truth hurts. But we can separate hurt feelings from actual harmful language. So when we share the truth in love, it hurts our sinful minds, our prideful minds. But we're not harming people. We're not saying they're horrible, wretched, not deserving of God's grace, but we have to be confronted with the truth of what the gospel says. 
take it from the beginning. Let's start with sin itself. The Bible teaches us from the moment that we're conceived, we are conceived in sin because our parents are sinful. We inherit that DNA. So even down to a microscopic DNA level, we are sinners. And because of that sin, it puts us at enmity with God from the moment we breathe our first breath to the moment we take our last Outside of God's saving grace, our sin puts us at war with God. From small sins to great sins, the punishment for those sins is death and an eternity in hell. That is wildly offensive. Hell is not the place where you're absent of God. Hell is not some place where you're like, finally, I'm away from God and I'm living in this torment. No, hell is the full presence of God's wrath against sin. Jesus, knowing that cup would come in the Garden of Gethsemane, was sweating blood because he knew how horrific the cup of God's wrath was. And in hell, in our sin, we experience that full cup of wrath for all of eternity. That's deeply offensive, but it gets worse than that. Not only do our sins deserve death and hell, but the whole time on earth, we spend our lives suppressing truth and God's righteousness because we don't wanna be exposed to the light of the gospel, because we don't wanna be exposed in the way that we're worshiping ourselves and living for a little mini kingdom of one. So we suppress this truth and righteousness. We harm ourselves, we hurt other people. Sin renders us spiritually absolutely dead to God. There's nothing in us that longs for him. There is no switch that flips in our mind. It's like, yeah, I think I'm gonna try out Jesus today. No, none of that ever happens. Jesus has to radically come to our spiritually dead corpse and wake us up by his grace to even understand that we struggle with sin. Sin leaves us hell bent on earth, fomenting rage and hate towards God, shaking our fist. We are the same people who were at the foot of the cross, mocking him and laughing at him, saying, save yourself, Jesus. That is the story of the sinner. You can start to see how offensive the gospel message is. In light of that corruption, though, God sent Jesus and you think, okay, well, it's maybe less offensive now. You could preach law all day and make everybody really mad. You could say, don't do this, do this all day long in a sermon. Everybody gets really mad. But then once you start to talk about grace, where you can't save yourself, where you can't earn God's righteousness, this gets even more offensive. Think about that. Because sin renders us completely unable to live the life that God's called us to live, Jesus had to leave heaven, come to earth, be born in a manger, and then from birth to death, live out of the law God has called us all to live that we can never live. Internally, externally, obeying perfectly in thought, word, and deed for his entire life. And he had to do that because we are unable to do that. He had to live sinlessly, because when he was tortured, there was no sin of his own to pay for. 
So for him to die for our sins, he had no sin to pay for, but he had enough room for all of sin, for all of humanity, for those who would trust that his sacrifice paid for your sins. This is what we called his substitutionary atoning death, where he takes all of our sin on the cross on him and he gives us his righteousness and we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. You can't be good enough for Jesus to say, you know what, you're super good today. Here's a little bit of extra righteousness for you. No, the, the gospel teaches us that even our best works are but filthy rags before the Lord. And Jesus has to impute his righteousness to us. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Jesus had to live this way, die a torturous death to make you right with God. And there is no other way to be made right with God. There is no other worldview, no other belief system, no other effort other than that of Christ for the world to be saved. This exclusive access is deeply offensive to sinful hearts. The offense keeps coming. He didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave three days later and the resurrection's important. Because if Jesus would have stayed dead, that means his sacrifice wasn't accepted. But because he rose from the grave, that was God saying the payment is made. I accept it. Jesus rose to life, conquering the grave. And he had to do all this because we can't do that. We will not rise from the grave three days later. God in the flesh had to do that. And then for us to be saved, he welcomes us by his grace to put our faith and trust in him only. And you might be saying, well, that's not offensive. That's like the good part of the good news. Here's the scandalous part of this. For morally upright citizens, you get saved the same way the murderer gets saved, the same way the adulterer gets saved, the same way the person who's uh, uh, harming children gets saved. The ground is level at the cross. The morally upright person and the most depraved human being, think of Paul before he became a Christian, was killing Christians. He thumbed up the stoning of Stephen. That murderer and us, pretty decent Christian people, all are saved the same way at the cross. It's wildly offensive. It's wildly offensive. But there's more offense that comes. Jesus says, you've turned to me in faith. You trust me, you're my child. But now I command you, if you love me, to keep my commandments, to follow me, to go share this good news with others around you, to let the gospel and the Holy Spirit that is changing you radically change your heart from the inside out. And you are to be my witness and my presence and my disciple in this world of darkness. So we can't keep this news to ourselves. The gospel is good news, meaning we have to share it. We can't just live news. It must be shared. And I'm about to say something that I am in full support of. Imagine Swifties. 
right? There's a point here. Swifties are fiercely loyal and completely unashamed. If they want to shut something down, they get together and they could shut something down immediately. And I'm not mad about it. It's really impressive. Mark my words, I guarantee you the Chiefs very will likely be in the Super Bowl because ratings are absolutely through the roof with Swifties. Imagine the faith of Christians being as strong as the allegiance and love of Swifties. Imagine what it would look like globally, Christians having each other's back like that, being unashamed and unafraid and fiercely loyal to Jesus. We're called to live out of the life of the gospel and to share it with others. And where internal conflict comes from is when the light of the gospel shines in our lives and even in our own hearts, conflict results. Jesus commands that nothing in this life has precedent and allegiance in our lives more than him. And so you can see where this allegiance can create enemies in the world, in your household, and even your own heart. Look at what Jesus said in verses 34 through 36. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This sounds shocking on the surface. It's like, what? Like, that's not the Jesus I saw in the Jesus storybook Bible. That dude looks really enjoyable to be around. Like, he doesn't look like he's gonna create that much conflict. And although Jesus's words are shocking, it's actually very, a very common experience inside of the Christian life. Jesus is saying, once you follow him, his spirit takes up residence in your life and you start to change. And who feels that change more than anybody around you? Those who you live in close proximity with. They'll notice the change. And in the first century, where multitudes of families lived in close proximity to one another, when somebody became a Christian, it affected everybody. So when you change, when your heart change, people around you, those closest to you will feel, it, will feel it first. One of my mentors in seminary was telling me a story. Uh, when he was the pastor of his church, it was early in his career, uh, he was supporting a college ministry. And one of the girls had come from a uh, religious background. She was involved in the college ministry. And right before Thanksgiving break, they had uh, a speaker come in the gospel, she really heard it for the first time. Have y'all had those experiences? Like, well, I heard the gospel all the time, but then I just really got it. It was that moment for her where she got the gospel. She was so excited. She saw herself as a new person, a new creation. She had been struggling with sin. She had been struggling in her life and she was so thankful for the gospel. She was excited. She couldn't wait to tell other people about it. And so Thanksgiving break, she goes home. She tells her mom and dad, she's like, mom, dad, I'm a Christian. I got saved a few weeks ago. Jesus is changing my life. The world looks different to me and her parents. said, saved? What? You were raised in church with us. We read the Bible to you. You were baptized. You took communion. What do you mean now you're a Christian? Her parents started to take deep offense to this. 
They were so angry at her that they cut off her college tuition because they said they didn't want to go, her to go to this campus ministry anymore. She was on her own for college. She didn't get invited home for Christmas break. She had to spend her Christmas break with some of her friends in the college ministry. She was ridiculed and ostracized by her own family. And all those Jesus's words are very shocking. This is a common experience. I've met with many families, some even in this church, who have felt the ostr being ostracized by their families by just holding a Christian worldview. It's real. J.C. Ryle quotes this better than anything I could ever say. He says this, so long as one man believes and another man remains unbelieving, so long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another is desirous to give them up, the result of the preaching of the gospel will mean division. He brings peace, but that peace divides the world between those who have embraced that peace and those who have rejected it and opposed it. You see, Jesus is very similar to a magnet here. Imagine all of humanity are iron filings and you lay those filings on a sheet of paper and you drop a magnet on top of that paper. Those filings are gonna go to the north and the south. The magnet and the polarization of the magnet creates division. So it is with Jesus. The peace that he brings, brings a lot of peace for the people who are trusting in him, who are walking and doing life and experiencing the same things. But Jesus' peace also brings division to those who don't trust in him, who think that all the filings that are trusting in him are crazy. It brings natural division. The one thing, however, is that the gospel message and Christ's power and his influence cannot be ignored. The gospel touches everything in our lives. And this is what Jesus is teaching in our text this morning. His disciples were being sent out and they were seeing Jesus heal people. They were experiencing the fruit of being in relationship with Jesus. And they were excited about going into the world. They were excited to share the gospel. We are gonna be loved everywhere. It's gonna be so much fun. Everybody, let's go. And Jesus is saying, that's not what's going to happen. Actually, let me tell you how bad it's really going to get. Jesus is setting their expectations right, and he does that for all of us in this room this morning. You see, when you live out of the light of Christ, when you let gospel light shine in your hearts, in your life, in your relationships, your vocation, the way we raise our kids, everything, when the light of the gospel shines on that, darkness is gonna try and overtake it. Conflict will come. But the good news, when conflict comes, Jesus promises that he will equip us for the conflict. Notice verse 16. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious for how you're to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
So when you get in conflict, the Trinitarian God is with you. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are not alone, Christian. This is powerful. Verse 26 and 28, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. He's saying, don't keep this a secret. And what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. You see, since Jesus knows that the world will treat his disciples the same way they treated him, he points us to the source of power when we face persecution. In those moments when we take a stand for truth and righteousness, when we do it in the most loving and gracious way ever, you are never alone there. You might feel alone, but the God of all creation, Father, Son, and Spirit is with you. And he is your source of strength when we face varying degrees of persecution. And Jesus is instructing us here on how to be street smart Christians. Basically how we're supposed to be wise and innocent. How we're supposed to be excited for the gospel, but know when to say it and how to say it. How we can be both poised and powerful in the middle of all of our relationships. All of this will not come from us. That's gonna come from the Holy Spirit. And Son in his story that exemplifies this. What this means then is we don't need to go out looking for trouble. We don't need to be the Christians doing the hot takes all over the internet just to make people mad. We don't need to stand on street corners yelling at people for using Zins and smoking cigarettes. We don't need to do those things. We can live our life in the relational context that God has given us. And as we live for him, conflict will inevitably come to our doorsteps. Oftentimes we think when there's gospel conflict, it's because we're doing something bad. But what Jesus is saying is when you live for him, when he is the one you worship, when you stand up for him, if that conflict comes, that's not because you're doing something wrong. You're doing exactly what he's called you to do. In those moments, lovingly stand firm and trust in God's spirit to work through you. Now, Let's bring this to a very ground level for us in our lives. I want us to think about all those concentric circles of conflict that Jesus talked about, from governmental leaders to culture, to our families, and even in ourselves. Now, at a very foundational level, Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's inerrant, it's infallible, meaning it's without error and unable to contain error because it's divinely inspired. Because there's no error or confusion in the Godhead, there's no error or uh, some things can be harder to understand, but there's no direct conflict of the truth of the Bible. And because we believe the Bible is an error infallible and our source for how we glorify God and enjoy him forever, we're gonna see conflict. Think about Christian leaders. I know of many stories of guys who have left their careers and wives who have left their careers to go on the mission field. One of my best friends and mentor was, had a scholarship to be a brain surgeon. He left all that away to go live and serve 
uh, overseas to be a missionary. Everybody thought he was crazy. His pastors thought he was crazy. Everyone around him thought he was crazy. And he's still serving in the field today. There's going to be conflict. God has called me to something greater than just being a brain surgeon. Think about non-religious institutions and governments. Think about the experience of the early church. Very early on in the Christian story, the Roman government hated Christians primarily because we care about life. What would happen was that children would be born maybe with uh, physical or uh, mental exceptionalities and special needs. And they would abandon children in the woods and leave them to die. Christians would go by candlelight through the forests early in the wee hours of the morning and go find these screaming babies and would take them home and care for them. The government put a bounty on Christian heads for doing this. They were despised and hated by the government. Think about Christians today. We value all life no matter what the exceptionality may be. And I have dear friends. You have a child that has special needs and every nurse and doctor regularly pressured them to abort that child. Christians hearing their story would say, well, I'm praying for your choice. And this family saying, what choice? I love this child. As we were adopting our second son, we had to sit through training after training, telling us that white Christians are the reason why adoption is glorified child trafficking. We've heard story after story of people caring for children. And loving children, that's why we partner with Isaiah 117 house, that's caring for children in orphanages. And somehow thinking Christians just have this savior complex and mentality or we're brainwashed or we think we're some holy uh, other people who's just this moral example and we're absolutely hated for it. The nurse, when we were in the hospital to adopt Elias, kicked us out of the room so that she could go to my second son's birth mother and tell her to stop the adoption, that it's gonna be the worst thing you could ever do for Elias's life. And for about 72 hours, we were told that we weren't gonna be able to bring him home. All because people in positions of government and leadership have cast Christians into this horrific, life-hating cult mentality that just wants to destroy things. And what we see as good, the world sees as evil. Conflict will come. Think about socially the way that we interact inside of our lives with our relationships. We don't participate in gossip bashing sessions with friends. If we see it happening, we stand up for the person getting bashed or we just walk away and everybody's like, oh, there's goody two shoes again. 
Think about when we're with friends and people are bashing their spouses around us and we don't engage in spouse bashing because our spouse's sins aren't something that's a topic of conversation for us to poke fun about. Think about what we do with our children, how people think we're crazy when we don't give our children unfettered access to YouTube and to social media. There is a study done that within three clicks, a child can go from a children's cartoon to pornography within three clicks from YouTube. And somehow we think we're, they think we're crazy for not giving children access to these things. How we question the very government who wants us to destroy our children thinks that we're crazy when we question their motives for how they raise our children through K through 12. We're the crazy ones. Conflict will come. People will think we're crazy. What, your, your wife stays at home and raises your children? What kind of old-fashioned mess is that? Are y'all churning butter? Like, what's happening? I, the more we seek to live our lives, and I'm not saying these are the only way to live our lives, but when we live our lives as what we feel God is leading us to do out of his world, word, conflict, will never come. Think about our family dynamics. Think about your parents and your siblings. When you become a Christian and you start to notice how you were raised in toxic households, where you're starting to get in counseling and you're working on your mental health, and then you start to notice codependency patterns and boundaries being broken and not being respected, and our parents raised us a certain way and we don't do it that way again. It's easy to be ostracized there. Even if our parents are Christians, if you try to do something different, you can see the manipulation. Well, that's not very Jesus-like of you. It's not very Christian of you to have boundaries and to not engage in toxicity. Well, I don't wanna hang out with them at Thanksgiving this year. I'm not sending them a Christmas card this year. I've walked through this with multiple families, even in this church. This is real. And think about the last circle in ourselves. Think about all the conflict that the gospel shines light on, and it happens inside of our own hearts. We're called to pray for our enemies. Think about that person that's hurt you, who's manipulated you, who's abused you, who may have ruined a relationship that you've had. The Bible says you're to pray for them. I don't want to pray for them. I actually want them to suffer. Conflict in your own heart. The Bible says we're supposed to live a lifestyle of repentance. And you got in a conflict over a theological point with somebody or how to raise their kids. And you had the theologically correct position, but you shared it in a non-loving way. You can be right and lose in the same token and still need to repent. You see from outside of us all the way down to inside of our hearts. When the gospel shines light on darkness, conflict will happen. But like sun, when you find your life by being, being willing to die, we find, we find freedom, true freedom when we realize that we serve the one living and triune God who has sent his Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, 
to care for us and to be with us even when we face the most brutal of circumstances. Because at the end of the day, C.S. Lewis said it this way, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and even turn that agony into glory. For those of you trusting Christ this morning, you serve a living God who is in control of all things. Your eternity is secured, not by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of the Savior who rose from the grave, who indwells you. And he has secured your faith and nothing in this life will be able to snatch you out of his hands. And because you have an eternal reality waiting for you, you can lose every temporal thing in this life and still have Jesus and be content and full of joy and full of peace because everything can be stripped away from us, but Jesus can't. And in those moments, we'll find we have everything that we need. And when you get that, you start to live. When you get that, you start to experience freedom. So we asked, what are the consequences of following Jesus? Well, we've just seen that there's a whole bunch of negative ones. Jesus will be with you, but there's also positive consequences. Look at uh, these next several verses. Verse 22, and you'll be hated by all for my, name, for my name's sake. What? No, it keeps going. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 29 through 33, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Underline that verse, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you gotta do. That's phenomenal. What we find here is a stream of assurances for the disciples of Jesus when we inevitably face conflict. This text is telling us that those who are indwelled by God's spirit, those who trust in Jesus, you will endure to the end. You will be saved. And we will be saved because God cares about all of the smallest details in our lives, hence the number of hairs on your head. Jesus doesn't have a lot of counting to do with me, but he's meaning that he cares about the finest, smallest, most insignificant details of our life. He's there with us. But I want us to zoom in on the greatest gift of all. I told you to underline it. The greatest gift for any Christian to ever receive is to be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father in heaven. To be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father in heaven. There's no greater gift that you could ever receive by being a disciple there's no greater gift. Think about that. When we live for him, when we stand firm for him, when we acknowledge him in our lives and in our relationships, although that comes with pain and loss and suffering, there's gonna come a time where he's going to acknowledge us before the Father. And you're gonna see him beaten and bruised up. We will be hitting heaven. And he's gonna say, well done, child, you're home. You're safe. I know it was hard, but I'm proud of you. I love you. 
your mind will come home and he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more suffering, pain and loss or mourning, but we will feast with him forever. Think about the beauty of that. Think about the small ways he calls us to acknowledge him because it's grounded in Jesus acknowledging us before the Father. That's beautiful. We're once his enemy. Now we are his family. And when we stand before him, we're gonna have Jesus embracing us, loving us. And that acknowledgement that's coming for us changes everything we do here on earth. This is the joy that's set before us as to why we can take up our cross and follow him. But in the meantime, some of you, because of your faith, you're going to experience hardship. Some of you are going to grow apart in other relationships like the magnet. Some of you are gonna miss out on promotions. Some of you are gonna miss out on scholarships. Some of you are gonna miss out on parties. Kids who are here today, I wanna to talk to you just for a quick second. If you don't have social media or YouTube, or not allowed to date, watch all these crazy things on TV, not go to certain parties, not do certain things that everyone else in school gets to do, I know oftentimes you can feel like you're in an absolute prison. My mom and dad don't love me. They don't want me to have friends. What they realize is that there is darkness in this world. They're called to steward you and to care for you and to prepare you for when you see that darkness. And there's things at your age that I don't even wanna see at my 38 years of age that your parents are shielding you from. In those moments, you're going to miss out on things. And I know it's going to hurt, but your parents have a greater love for you than what you can imagine in that moment. Trust the process. Trust your parents as they point you to Jesus. We're all going to experience this because of our commitment to Christ. And all those standing for Jesus in those moments and acknowledging him will be hard it's in those moments where pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you with the future joy that you will experience when you see Jesus face to face. Everything's gonna be worth it. Now, very practically, another assurance that Jesus gives us are the Christians sitting around you in this room. When you feel like you're all alone, when nobody else can understand what you're going through, when you're wrestling with the political, government, social, family dynamics of just being a Christian, God has put all of us in this room together to support one another and care for one another. Don't sleep on the beauty and the power of God's church. This is a grace for all of us. This is why we prioritize Sunday mornings. But I won't go off on a sermon on that. I'll close with this poem by Grant Colfax Turner. He says, my life is but a weaving between God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper 
and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Father, life is chaotic. We don't know the future. We don't even know our hearts accurately, but you do. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know what we struggle with. You know what today holds. If you choose to give us tomorrow, you know the trouble tomorrow brings. I pray, Father, that when we experience conflict for following you by just being a Christian, that we would run to you in our safe retreat, but that we would stand firm, that we would be wise and gentle, that we would know that the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords who governs all of creation has sent his spirit to live in all of us. And in that, we can be confident. In that, we can be sure. In that, we can know that when tough conversations come, we pray for your spirit to be active and present in us. Jesus, you haven't called us to anything that you haven't already experienced and conquered. So I pray that when life gets painful, that when relationships start to fray, that you would help us to cling and trust to you longing for that future acknowledgement when we'll stand and see you face to face where you say, well done, welcome home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.